0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles. We're gonna continue our Exodus series now. Exodus chapter nine is where we'll be this morning. So go ahead and turn there, get your devices out and get to Exodus chapter nine. Let me catch us up real quick just to get us there. God has called a man named Moses to set his people free from slavery in Egypt. God's people called the Hebrews or called the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt. They've been there for 430 years and God is finally about to set them free. It's been bad for the last hundred or so. Um, there was a pharaoh who got really mad at them, got really nervous about how greatly, how big the Israelite nation was growing, enacted some practices to try to keep that uh, from happening. It didn't work, and so they kept having more babies, and so they kept growing and multiplying. A new pharaoh has taken over, and uh, Moses now has come back. He was living in Egypt for 40 years. Went to the wilderness for 40 years. Long story short, he killed somebody. Mama, he killed a man. And he ran away into the wilderness. And now he's come back into Egypt by God's call to help rescue and set God's people free. Moses was nervous to do it on his own, so he brought his older brother Aaron with him. And so they have met with Pharaoh a number of times. The Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. He has all the power. Really, he is the greatest power in the world at this time. Running the country of Egypt, they're taking over land. But he believes and he's been taught from birth that he, in fact, is deity, that he is a God himself. And that all the other gods, the sun god, the moon god, the fertility god, the god of the Nile, they all kind of fall under his direction. And so what he's done now is he's found himself in a battle against the one true God, which God named himself earlier in Exodus 3 as Yahweh. I am who I am. I be that I be. This is who Yahweh is. And so he's in this toe-to-toe battle with him. And so we've gotten through six plagues. God says, I'm gonna show you who I am through many outrageous, marvelous works. And he's done six of them. We covered those last week. And now we're gonna to get to seven, eight, and nine. Next week, we're gonna cover 10, which is the plague of the death of the firstborn, which we'll discuss over Passover and then into Easter weekend. But what we've noticed about these plagues is they come in groups of three. We call them triads. Triads. They come in groups of three. So plague one, two, and three is one triad. Plague four, five, and six is a second triad. And then this is the last triad, seven, eight, and nine. And we know they're triads based on the language that is used to set them up. The first of each triad, the first, the fourth, and the seventh all begin in the morning at the Nile River. That's the first of them. The second one, so two, five, and eight, all happen in Pharaoh's palace, and the last one of the triad, 3, 6, and 9, all come without warning at all. So that's how we're able to group them into triads. And what we're seeing is they're actually growing in their intensity. And we're going to see that happen here. And for those of you who like this sort of thing, what's actually happening, if you dig even further into it, is God is taking the creation account from Genesis 1 and 2, and essentially he's flipping it and he's reversing it. Hebrew scholars say this is the decreation account. God is telling Pharaoh, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. What I created, I can decreate. I am in charge of all of this. So this is all happening here. So we're gonna pick up here in 7, 8, and 9. So let me just quickly run through them, then we're gonna read uh, the passages together. Plague number seven, the seventh plague is the plague of hail. We're in the south, so I have to spell that, H-A-I-L. Otherwise, the accent makes you think I'm saying something I'm not saying. Hail hath no fury. This is H-A-I-L. It's different than what you think I'm saying. Uh, this is hail. It's in Exodus 9, 13 through 35. And here, um, God is dealing with the Egyptian gods, Newt, Osiris, and Set. Uh, they are uh, the gods of the atmosphere. Uh, that's who Newt is. Osiris is the god of like vegetation and the land. And Set uh, is, is the god of... Uh, Fertility, uh, that kind of stuff, livestock, all that happens there. So this is who God is dealing with in that plague. The eighth plague is the plague of the locusts. This is Exodus 10, 1 through 20. The same three gods because of what it deals with. The locusts come and they eat everything that the hail had left standing, essentially. So locusts come in uh, in that way. And then the ninth plague is the plague of darkness because... Back in Genesis chapter one, the world was dark, it was void. He's flipping everything around. So God sends, I mean, intense darkness, like you can't even see each other kind of darkness in Exodus 10, 21 through 29. This is the Egyptian god, Re or Ra, depending on on where you read it. It's the sun god, the god of the sun. Pharaoh himself thought he might be the embodiment of this very god. But this is who God is dealing with in these plagues. So before we dig into all of that, I wanna set it up this way. There was a man named William Ernest Henley, and he was a British Victorian poet in the mid to late 1800s. When he was 16 years old, he had his left leg amputated because of complications coming from tuberculosis. A number of years later, his other leg started having issues, so he sought solutions and was told this would require amputation as well. But instead, he traveled to Edinburgh at the age of 24 to enlist the services of a distinguished English surgeon named Joseph Lister. And Lister was able to save Henley's leg after multiple surgical interventions. While recovering in the infirmary, Henley was moved to write the verses that became the poem called Invictus. It's a memorable evocation of the Victorian Stoicism called the stiff upper lip of self-discipline and fortitude in adversity. Each stanza takes considerable note of Henley's perseverance and fearlessness throughout his early life over the 20 months he was under Dr. Lister's care. Invictus is Latin for unconquered. And the poem is most known for its themes of willpower and strength in the face of adversity, much of which is drawn from the horrible fate assigned to many of the amputees of the day, gangrene and death. So I wanna read this poem, it'll be on the screen. I want to fix our attention on the last stanza of it, but here is Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So Henley wrote this poem, like really talking about proclaiming his own fortitude. Talking about how strong of a man he is to go through the amputation of one leg and then the multiple surgeries for the next, fighting gangrene and death. And he makes the statements at the end of the poem, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, those of us who have been 24, we understand that sentiment, don't we? At 24, didn't you feel the same way? I mean, I was talking to a friend this morning who said he worked in the yard yesterday. He's not 24 anymore. And his body has told him he is no longer the master of his soul. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't, isn't that true? But this today for us still rings true, particularly in our culture. If it is to be, it's up to me. We are a pull-ourselves-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of a culture. In fact, you take this poem and you get Eminem to read it, and you put a beat behind it, you you get Little Young Jeezy, whoever, whatever they are, you will put them, and you play that in your headphones before a football game, tell me you're not ready to go crush some heads. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. You put it behind any, any commercial, you're gonna buy that car, you're gonna buy that protein powder, right? You're gonna go on that diet. You're gonna get the abs of steel as long as this is playing in the background. This is true for us today. Now for some of us, this is obvious. And it's obvious if you were to scroll through your phone and see how many pictures of yourself you have in them. Scroll through your social media, see how many selfies you have. See how much you feel like the master of your fate, the captain of your soul. Life is about you. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. This is how we feel. For some of us, this is less obvious. For many of us, it's just this subtle gnawing feeling that all of life is on our shoulders. The fate of my family, the fate of my marriage, the fate of my finances, it's all up to me. Now, we know it's too much to bear but this is the most efficient way to handle life. Just do it yourself. It's up to me. I don't know how many of you golf. Um, You'll be happy to know that if you come and golf with me, you will realize quickly, I don't golf often. I'm not good at it. Uh, But I like to go, and I only like to go because every once in a round, there is one shot that makes me wanna come back and play again. Does that happen to you if you play golf? I'm awful. Like, I'm awful for 95 strokes. But gosh, that 96 one, I'll be back next week. This sounds fun. Now, I'm no Nathan Turner, our high schooler who got a hole-in-one a couple weeks ago on the golf team. But this is what, this is, golf is that way for me. I enjoy being out there. The truth is, I don't like playing with other people. I'm just that bad. I'd rather chase my own golf balls in the woods and enjoy my time for seven hours out there. And... Uh, It's fine. If you wanna do that, fine, you can come with me. But I'm bad at it. But every, again, once around, there is a shot where I'm like, I could probably play at the Masters. I could probably do that now. I think I've figured this thing out. That's what life is for me. Life could be falling apart, but there's always one moment when I get it right. And I'm like, shoot, I got this. Yeah, from now on, I'll just do that again. But life, like golf, It costs way too much money, and I'm awful at it. But for many of us, this is the story of our lives. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, what God does with Pharaoh is to remind Pharaoh himself he is no master or captain at all. The only master and captain there is, is Yahweh, the one true let's pick up in Exodus chapter 9. I want to go back to verse 12. I want to handle a few things that are going to mess a lot of us up. Exodus 9 verse 12, the sixth plague has happened. Verse 12 reads, but the Lord hardened, you can circle that word, hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he, Pharaoh, did not listen to them, being Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, As you you read through these next three plagues, you're gonna see this a lot. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He makes it stubborn. He makes it callous. And there are moments when it seems like Pharaoh's about to give in, but God hardens his heart so that he doesn't. Now, for many of us, this is a major issue. What do you do with a God who hardens the hearts of people? And then holds them accountable for their disobedience? What do you do with a God who makes it impossible for you to succeed and then holds you accountable for your failures? We have to wrestle with that question. It says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. How could a loving God mess with a human being like that? It feels unfair to Pharaoh. As much as you hate saying that, it feels like saying it's unfair to Hitler. But it's unfair to Pharaoh that he doesn't have a chance, as we read from what we think, to respond in the right way to the Lord. Now, I understand all the questions. But I will say this to you just keep reading. Verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. So this is what takes us back to the Nile. Every morning, Pharaoh would go to the Nile. Some think to bathe, others think to go and worship the God of the Nile. The Nile was the lifeblood of everything in Egypt. And present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the Elohim of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues, in my translation, the English Standard Version says, on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, in translation, we lose something significant of what's happening here. Any of your translations say this will be at Pharaoh's heart? Any my translations say heart there instead of you yourself? Okay, The Hebrew word for you yourself, which mine says, is the Hebrew word leb, which is the heart. It speaks to the the center of decision-making, of the will. It's the first time God makes this statement. He's done six plagues, and he gets to the seventh, and he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, these next three plagues are about your heart, Pharaoh. These are about you. I'm coming for you. That's what these next three plagues are. They're a direct attack on Pharaoh. Well, why? Because for most of Pharaoh's life, he has positioned himself as a god. He has positioned himself as the master of his fate. The captain of his fate, the master of his soul. This is who he has positioned himself to be. And so as we read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, you need to understand this first of all. Pharaoh had already hardened his heart. God is just expediting the process. Pharaoh has set himself up as one who is opposed to God for most of his life. He is on the throne. He is in charge. Everyone bows to him. And so God has dealt with the Egyptian gods, but what he's recognized is the greatest issue is Pharaoh himself. And so he says, these are about you. I'm coming for your heart, Pharaoh. Let's continue in verse 15. God says through Moses to Pharaoh, by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, I could have destroyed you by now. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 17, but you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So, Pharaoh has picked a fight with a God he's never seen before. And he's starting to realize as the plagues go on that he might have picked on the wrong guy. And here at Plague Seven, God tells Pharaoh, okay, now it's you and me. This is for you and me now. And then we reach Plague Eight, the plague of the hail H A I L, to be clear. Verse 18 of Exodus 9. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as it never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Then look at this in verse 19. God tells Pharaoh, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on him. Notice what God does. God tells Pharaoh, this is about your heart. This is you and me. I'm gonna give you a way out. I'm gonna give you grace. Go get your livestock, get your men, get them out of the field because this hail will be so bad that it will kill man and beast. And he gives Pharaoh a chance. He gives him a choice. Obey. Bring him in. Verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And he guesses which one Pharaoh was? Now it's the first time God offers a way out and protection for the people of Egypt. It's the first time. The hail comes down, destroys everything. There's some crops still left up because of where they were in the germination process. Anything, any man or beast left out in the field was struck down by hail and killed. Like we're a long way from frogs on beds, right? Like we've, that escalated quickly at this point. Dead livestock, dead human beings, because of a storm they've never seen before. Hail so bad that fires are springing up in the midst of Egypt. Exodus nine, let's go down to verse 27. Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. Oh, this time, Pharaoh? I mean, I was good before, but you got me now. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. And this feels like a really good moment, doesn't it? But those of us who have kids, we know how this goes. Plead with the Lord, he says, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. So Moses said to Pharaoh, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But then look at this. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. I hear the words you're saying, Pharaoh. I'm just not sure you believe it. So Moses does what he says, stretches his arms out, God ceases the storm. Verse 34 And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. We had a moment of maybe it's gonna go well, only to see that Pharaoh is who he is. And we're back. Exodus 10 the Lord says to Moses, go into Pharaoh, which is a way of saying, go into his court, go into his palace, for I have hardened his heart. I have stubborn his heart and the heart of his servants. Why? That I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson." how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done to them that you may know that I am the Lord. And so now God brings a two-pronged approach to his plagues. I'm after Pharaoh's heart and I want him to see that I am the one true God. I am the Yahweh. Oh, and Moses, this is for you too and for your sons and your grandsons. This account This Exodus account is the most quoted account in the New Testament of the Old Testament. This moment of deliverance from slavery in Egypt is the seminal moment for our faith as Christians. What God says here ends up coming true. This has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. This is not just for Pharaoh, but it's also for Moses. Verse three, so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says Yahweh, the Elohim of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. What is the Lord after? The humility of Pharaoh. For him to finally admit, I'm no longer the captain of my soul. So Moses announces to Pharaoh, here's what God's gonna do. He's gonna send plague, or locusts, a plague of locusts. And they're gonna come in and they're gonna eat everything that's been left from the hail. Whatever hope you had for harvest in the future will be taken out by the locusts. I don't know if you've ever been around a locust. We have a whole grove of them down south. But locusts, they're nasty. They're loud, they're gross, they're disgusting. God sends so many that it makes the land dark. That's how many. Like it feels like a storm's rolling in, but it's all bugs. This is what God sends. But look at verse seven of chapter 10. Pharaoh's servants now have turned on Pharaoh. It's gotten that bad. And they've said to him, how long shall this man, Moses, be a snare to us? Just let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? There comes a point for every person who has chosen to be the captain of their own soul, the master of their own fate, that there is a wake of destruction behind them. The problem is we don't even see it because we're so self-absorbed in defending our name, defending our reputation, fighting for what we want and our comfort and our status and, and our name and our popularity and our likes on Instagram and TikTok that we no longer see the wake of destruction in our path. We don't see our wife. Falling apart at the seams. We don't see our kids crying out for their mama. We don't don't see what's happened. Pharaoh has gotten so consumed with his battle, his identity, that he has neglected the people he is responsible for. And the very thing that has brought him to power, Egypt, has been destroyed. And his servants are saying, Don't you get it, Pharaoh? Everything is ruined. You've ruined everything. And so God sends the locusts, and you can write this down, he sends them with an east wind, and that's gonna be important for us in the future. He uses an east wind to send the locusts into Egypt. They destroy the rest of the plants the hail did not destroy. In fact, scripture reads, not one green thing remained. Verse 16 of chapter 10 Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. And plead with Yahweh your Elohim only to remove this death from me. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. You can remember remember that. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. Before not a green thing remained, now not a single locust remained in Egypt. But, verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Plague eight, Moses hardens his heart. Plague nine, God hardens his heart. If it's not messing with you, you're not paying attention. Verse 21, the plague of darkness. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. You understand how intense it's darkness you can feel, darkness that's oppressive, darkness that's heavy. For many of us, we know what darkness feels like, don't we? You know what it feels like to not get out from your addiction, to not get out from your anxieties, not get out from your depression. We understand that darkness is more than just something you see or can't see. Darkness is something you feel. And for many of us, the darkness we feel happens when we finally lay our heads on our pillows at night. As long as we busy ourselves, as long as we're the captain of our our soul and the master of our fate, we don't feel it. But the moment we stop, we feel it. And so what we've been trained to do is to not stop. Because the moment you stop, the moment you put your phone down, you feel it all over again. And for many of us, the drug of choice to keep us out of the heaviness of darkness is social media. And we mindlessly scroll because we don't want to feel the darkness anymore. There's a better way. This is darkness they can feel. Verse 22 of Exodus 10. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt for how many days? Three days, well that's interesting. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. You thought COVID was bad. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. The Pharaoh called Moses, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain. Back in the eighth plague, Moses had told, or Pharaoh had told Moses, hey, listen, here's the deal. I'll let all the men go. But the women and children stay back with me. Pharaoh still was convinced that he was the captain of his soul, the master of his fate. He believed the only reason these Israelite men had women and children was because of him. That without him, they had nothing. That The women and children belonged to Pharaoh. The men were gods and they could go. And Moses was like, ah, that's not going to work for us. And so now, Pharaoh says, fine, then here's the next deal. You can take your little ones and the women, except for your flocks and your herds have to stay here. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burn offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord your God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. Now watch what Moses says here. And we do not know with what we must must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Moses says, we've gotta take everything because we have no idea what we're doing. Do you see the growth in Moses? I mean, 40 days, 50 days earlier, Moses was saying, oh, I can't talk to him. And now he's saying, I don't even know what we're supposed to do in the future, but I know we gotta take the animals. It's a no for me, dog. Like, that's what he says to Pharaoh. Look at this growth. And you wanna know how the growth happened in Moses? Because he saw the mighty hand of God to Pharaoh. And so Moses is developing, Moses is growing, and Pharaoh is trying to make concessions still. We're nine plagues in, and Pharaoh still thinks he can outsmart God. He says, no, we gotta take them all. Because God said we're gonna worship him. And I got a feeling it involves these animals. So we gotta take them. Verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And then Moses, I love it. As you say, I will not see your face again. In the pitch darkness, Moses says this. And what's awesome is that he will never see Pharaoh's face again. Now, the chapter breaks into chapter 11. And chapter breaks are new to us, essentially, like only over the past 100 years or so, a few hundred years. So um, it's not helpful. This story continues here in 11, verse 1. Same context. Moses just said this, but look at verse 1 of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Just pay attention to what's happened. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt, making brick and mortar for Pharaoh to build all of his things that he wants to build. And we come to this part in the plagues and God says, hey, Egyptians, or Israelites, I want you to go ask the Egyptians for whatever they have, silver and gold. And they're gonna give it to you. Let's keep reading verse three. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. I don't know if you remember a few chapters ago, everyone hated Moses. Egyptians hated him, the Israelites hated him, Aaron hated him. I think God hated him at some point. Like it got real bad for Moses. But here, here, he's got favor, even of Pharaoh's servants. So Moses said to Pharaoh, after he just said, fine, you'll never see my face again. One more thing, Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. Remember the beginning of the seventh plague? Pharaoh, this is about your heart. I'm coming for you. The firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his thrones, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, I don't know what hot anger is, but geez, it sounds bad. And then Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This verse right here, verse 11 it's the last time we read of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's not the last plague, but it's the last time we read of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So I want to dispel a few things that we read into Scripture that aren't actually there. From this point forward, every decision Pharaoh makes is his decision. God will take his firstborn. And God will send the angel of death and there'll be cries throughout the land of Egypt on that midnight. And Pharaoh drives the people of Israel out of Egypt. And he has a moment where he can repent. He has seen the wonder of God. He has seen the mighty hand of God. He's even seen the grace of God in giving him ways out. And he has a moment where he can repent. He can turn. But instead, as the Hebrews are reaching the Red Sea, Pharaoh decides to go after them instead. So God's given Pharaoh choices. God's given him the ability now to see him. In fact, all of this was about Pharaoh seeing the hand of God, was about Pharaoh coming to worship the one true God. God was doing all of this to make himself known to Pharaoh. It's interesting though, we aren't the first people to wrestle with this idea. In the book of Romans, Paul, who was a Jew and then becomes a Messianic Jew, who is now following Jesus, writes a letter to the churches at Rome, dealing with a lot of theological issues. One of them being the fact that God chose the people of Israel because they're wrestling with, how could God choose this people and not another people? How could he, why would he choose this nation and not other nations? They're wrestling with, um, why does God heal some people and not other people? They're wrestling with, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? I know we don't ask those questions, but they used to, a long time ago. But here in Romans, Paul deals with it. And he's not gentle about it. And what Paul's going to address is the the very fact that we ask that question should take us back to Invictus. The fact that we're telling God how to be God should tell us that we think we are the captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. Romans 9, that'll be on the screen, you can turn there if you want. Romans chapter nine, verse 14. What then shall we say, Paul says? Is there injustice on God's part? So, so that God chose the nation of Israel, not other people. Are we saying God's injustice? Is that what we're saying? And he says, by no means, or God forbid, for what he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Underline, memorize that. Doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Paul says, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? How can he blame Pharaoh? For who can resist God's will? And Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back or talk back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Can a potter take clay and make one a toilet and one a bowl? Yes. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What if God, what if this is how God works? What if God can harden and he can save? What if if God can do those things? What if it is enough to me and you? What if we don't get to tell God how to be God? Then what? He's not coddling. He's not feeding into some kind of self esteem talk. Paul is saying, Listen, I don't know that the clay gets to tell the potter what to make out of himself. It's God. He continues down in verse 31. It says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. What he's saying is Israel tried. They tried to be the captain of their souls, the master of their faith. They they thought they could do it by human exertion and will. They thought by obedience they could earn salvation. Verse 32, why? Well, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You know what the biggest obstacle for us who believe that we are the captain of our soul, the master of our fate? The biggest obstacle is Jesus. The biggest obstacle is grace. The biggest obstacle is his finished work on the cross. The biggest obstacle for many of us today, particularly those who think we are the religious elite, is that it's not fair that God saves people who don't deserve to be saved. Pharaoh has built his life as invictus. Unconquerable. And for many of us this morning, we find ourselves in the same place. The biggest stumbling block is Jesus. You know what makes all of this go away? is Jesus. You know what makes all of our legalism, all of our striving, you know what makes it all go away? It's Jesus. And that's what we have to wrestle with. And some of us are like Pharaoh. And we're staunch And we're staunch and we're stuck in our ways against whatever it is, not recognizing, you know what you're against? You're against Jesus. And everything that's happened, what's been stripped away and pulled away and and the series of what feels like plagues in your life is actually the grace of God trying to show himself to you. And he'll get to plague seven and say, okay, listen, buddy, this is about you and me. I need you to see me for who I am. So I'll take away your crops and your income and I'll take away whatever you have relationally and I'll take away whatever it is you've been worshiping financially until you get to where it's just you and me and you recognize you are not the captain or the master, but I am. And I haven't asked you to perfect your mastery or your captainhood. I've asked you to follow me. All the false gods in Israel, the strongest false god we worship is the God of self. And this is the issue for many of us. The issue for us is the false god of self. We are the master, we are the captain. Self is the God we worship. And so we make decisions based on our comfort, on our security, on our ambition. We make decisions based on what we want. We plan our lives and we take classes and we go to seminars and we listen to podcasts all to empower the self, not realizing what we're doing as we're feeding the idolatry of self. And there comes a point where we, like Pharaoh, have hardened our heart to a point that we can no longer see God for who he is. This is why self-help will never work. Listen, you can read and listen to all the Oprah you want. You can listen to your podcast and you can become the best you and have your best life now. But all it does is feed the idol of self. That's all it's doing. You can do it, you can figure it out, you can learn more, you can achieve more, you can be better. This is an assault on God himself. And while we may know it, and we're faced with conviction in the moment, just like golf, you're going to go home and you're going to see something come through on your bank account that you worked for, and you're going to realize, shoot, I could handle it. Look, I pursued that second job. I did that other thing. I uh, I dated this girl. I moved to this county. And the enemy will begin to feed the lies again: of you don't need God, you're fine. It might be hard now, but you'll get through it. We like to choose ourselves because it's the path of least resistance. God is serious about our worship, even the worship of ourself. And I think there's one way that we can recognize that we've given our hearts to the God of self. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth. It's his, um, probably his third one. In the middle of 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter that's angry. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's condemning, almost, in its tone. And they receive it well. And he tells them in 2 Corinthians 7, I'm pleased with how you received this conviction. And he says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 7, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then look at verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret or that leads to life without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. As we look at Plagues 7 through 9 and we see Pharaoh's response to it. It seems as though Pharaoh felt grief and he repented. But what Pharaoh felt was worldly grief. Worldly grief is sorry that we got caught. It's sorry that our decisions caught up with us. That's what worldly grief is. Worldly grief is sorry for the consequences. Godly grief is sorry for the sin. And I know on Friday nights, there's a room full of men and women who are trying to move from worldly grief into godly grief. Their addictions and strongholds have caught up with them. And they've tried the worldly grief route only to find it hasn't satisfied, it hasn't set them free. But what sets us free is the godly grief. And the only way to do away with the God of self is to hate the sin of self. But the issue is, We don't hate it. We enjoy it. We enjoy the accolades and the likes. We enjoy the retweets. We enjoy whatever you get on TikTok. We enjoy all of it. We enjoy uh, what we think we worked for as far as a raise or a a bump in our title. But when it all comes crumbling down and when God is finally gracious enough to look you in the eye and say, this is about you and me, How will you respond? Will you respond like Pharaoh with a worldly grief, sorry that you got got caught, and when the circumstances and the consequences subside, you're back to your old ways? Or are you sorry for the sin? Worldly grief hates and avoids the consequences. Godly grief humbly accepts the consequences that you might walk forward from them. The cry this morning is that we must kill the false god of ourself you bow your heads and close your eyes. As much as I am embarrassed by and convicted by my own story, I am thankful for what it does to my eyes and my heart with scripture. I don't read these stories now like someone on the outside. I read these stories like someone on the inside. And this is not something I know about because I heard about it or read about it. It's something I know about because I've lived it. There is a false God of self in each and every one of us. It goes all the way back to the garden that we would pursue our own version of good and evil. But that God, that powerful God inside of us is the one we have got to kill. Jesus says things like take up your cross, deny yourself and take up your cross daily to follow. And you wanna know why you can't break free from strongholds and addictions? It's not because of some external God, it's because of the internal one in your own soul. Truth is, you like it. The truth is, we think we can figure it out. The truth is, we think we can earn it. But like we sang this morning, I'm gonna fight my battles on my knees. So this morning, I'm, I'm gonna pray, and maybe for you, there's conviction happening in you. I'm praying there is. Not for me and my own glory, but for your own freedom. And I'm praying that God would lead us into a godly grief that leads to life without regret of self. God, we thank you. Thank you that you're a God who doesn't give up on us. That you're a God who is relentless in your pursuit of our hearts. And that while externally things feel like they're falling apart, God, we trust that you are the master, you are the captain, that you hold it all in your hands. And then maybe, just maybe, maybe the hail and the locusts and the darkness are more about you trying to get to our hearts. And we've tried to argue with you and we've tried to tell you how to be God and how to live your life and and how to do what we think is best. And over and over again, you tried to remind us it's not you who's God, it's me. So God, would you help us to get off of our pithy little thrones and that we would bow before yours today. That we would cast our cares before you, cast our anxieties before you, cast our addictions before you, cast our um, strongholds before you. Trusting you, the one true God, to do what you say you will do. And when we have the chance to repent, God, help us to do it with godly grief in a way that faces consequences and accepts them as a way to freedom. Doesn't try to lie and hide behind false pretense. but that we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.